Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club, uh, where we're currently working our way through the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Lovecraft's uh, longest uh, work, um, at least the longest work he published under his name. I don't, but I don't think any of the revisions quite reach the length of of this story. So I'm confident in saying this is his longest work. Um, and we're right in the middle of the story. We're going to look at part three of five, chapter three of five chapters called A Search and an Evocation. And uh, it's not going to reach the splendor and the epicness of part two. I, I think part two is just brilliant. And so many layers are thematic layers are in there. It's a great standalone story. Um, telling the backstory of Joseph Kerwin, at least most of it. We get a little bit more in, in this part, but tells a straight up story about the kind of the emergence of Joseph Kerwin in Providence and his decline and his exposure and ultimately his defeat in, um, in 1771. And it's interlaced with the American Revolution in ways that I think are, are too apparent to be just a coincidence. So... Um, but anyways, if you want to hear more about that, go back to my earlier episode where I talk about those things. Um, but we're going to move on. We're going to talk about uh, chapter three. It's probably going to be a little bit of a shorter episode as I'm going to be a little bit more. Uh, well, this section, I guess, is more like a, it, it kind of gets you from from here to there. It's it's a necessary chapter in the story. Um, there's a lot of interesting things going on in here, but it, it's not quite as, as gut-wrenching as some of the other parts of the story, I think. Um, so this part of the story basically covers um, Charles Dexter Ward's life from when he first becomes no he first knows about Joseph Kerwin in 1918. He first learns about him until he awakens Joseph Kerwin. Now, it's it's not on the first reading. It's not 100% clear. That he's awakened i don't think you know a really clever reader might have figured it out but there's the clues but it's something that you know when you read it again and this story really does benefit from multiple readings uh when you come back you see oh that's that's joseph kerwin or something it's not just weird voices in his room um so it's a pretty actually humorous section too because we got this young man in his parents house doing weird stuff and it's in his in his room and trying to cover it up and try and make excuses to his parents about what he's doing. It is kind of, it, 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 it's drawn from life in that sense, right? Like the, the struggles of a young man trying to find his way in the world and explore his own interests when his parents are hanging over his shoulder. Um, now, obviously, he's into some pretty weird stuff by this point in the story, but it, it does have that kind of humorous subtext when we just kind of see him as, a, as an awkward young man trying to trying to pursue his his private interests uh, in the close quarters with his parents. But anyways, I, I talked a lot last time about how it seems that the people in the 1770s did such a poor job of covering up Joseph Kerwin, if that was their intent. They didn't do a very good job of it. And in, to Lovecraft's credit, he does show how difficult it was for uh, Ward to kind of dig up what he did about Joseph Kerwin. So a lot of this part of the story deals with him going to different libraries and writing librarians and traveling and, and all that kind of stuff, traveling all around New England to dig up this story. It's, it's really a search. It's a quest that takes him, you know, more than a year to finally unlock everything he needs to know. So this is going to be the source of a lot of what's in chapter two. Um, but we get a little bit of more details about Kerwin's deeper backstory here. 
um, it's kind of a filling it in, um, something that's been on our minds from the previous episode is like, what was Kerwin doing in Salem and how long was he in Salem and, and why did he leave and all that? So he gets this information from a diary, Smith Diary and Archives, and through letters from Jebediah Orn. And we've met Jebediah and Orn through letters uh, in part two. These were letters that were written to Joseph Kerwin, uh, including one fragment of one which warns him not to raise up anyone who might be able to defeat him or someone who's also a holder of magic. Again, obviously these people are, are raising the dead. They're doing probably into some other weird stuff too, like, uh, you know, with the outer gods, the other gods in some way, but primarily they're, they're interested in kind of acquiring knowledge through as many old occultists and wizards and, and scholars as they can. Um, now, he, Kerwin's own past takes him back to Salem in, in to the 1660s. So, you know, he's, a, you know, over 100 years old, at least much older than that, actually, because he first sort of shows up in Salem. And he's got this friend, uh, he's got two friends, actually, Edward Hutchinson and Simon Orne of Salem. And with the Salem story, we get this a little bit more detail on how Orne was able to kind of trick the local people into, th into explaining his long life by basically disappearing for a while, going to Europe, coming back and, you know, saying, oh, I'm the, I'm the son of that guy, you know, and, and, you know, I'm taking over the estate and then you just live the life as your son, right? And this is something presumably they've been doing for a while, right? So he gets those kinds of, of, of documents. And, but the other kind of connection here to Salem, which, of course, Lovecraft can't resist in making this connection, is to the, to the witch trials, right? He never um, fails to mention it when he has the chance. He's very much interested in this kind of uh, haunted aspect of New England history. And he mentions it here again. And Kerwin himself is directly connected to the Salem witch trials and in fact it seems it's it's part of the reasons why he had to leave um salem and he ends up in providence so the the addition of this orn material is very useful uh to kind of piecing together the full story of joseph Kerwin. the other thing we get here the other thing that charles dexter ward seems to find which helps him out is this Kerwin letter which was an answer to an orn letter they seem to be the only clear friends they have in the america so that they just write each other and this is a great letter. It's, it's over a page long in the book. It's all written in that old uh, kind of 18th century English style, obviously. He talks a lot about his commercial activities, his slaving. I mean, that's talked about very directly. Uh, for instance, at one point he writes, I have not taken neither steps nor found much ye process. It's plaguey hard to come near. And it uses up such a store of specimens. I'm hard put to get enough, notwithstanding the sailors I have from the Indies. So he, you know, something we already sort of know from chapter two, but it's clearly stated here is that he's using up sailors and slaves, you know, in his experiments directly. He, they, they are direct victims of, of Kerwin's pretty dark experiments that he's been engaged in. But we also get like Kerwin's ultimate goal, which is they already know how to live a long time how to fake their death and pass on their identity to, you know, to a, a, a son um, legally. But they don't really have true eternal life. They don't have this ability to really 
preserve themselves from bodily injury. And of course, Kerwin himself was killed, right, by this mob. So how do you preserve yourself? And this requires getting later, it's kind of like a spell, right? It requires getting later people to come on board. And he talks about how he hasn't really mastered this yet, right? Um, but he ultimately does, obviously, because he's able to influence Charles Dexter Ward to pursue this search, which is going to lead ultimately to the revival of Joseph Kerwin, um, you know, at some point. We also get his address. So this is something that Charles Dexter Ward has wanted for a long time since he began his investigations, as he's always wanted Kerwin's address. And he finds it in this letter. So this letter, um, again, someone should have went to the archives and done a better job of burning all these letters. But they end up in these archives somehow. And he's able to use this and to find the location of, of the old Kerwin home, which is now... Uh, still there, but it's it's lived in by a couple of black people, a couple of African-Americans who are kind of local working class folk. Um, and so um, Ward goes to visit this home, interacts a little bit with the people who live there. And ultimately, he sees this thing that kind of blows his mind, which is this uh, portrait of Joseph Kerwin that's there, a portrait that was actually referred to in Chapter 2 as well. Um, he sees this portrait and he can't resist it. So he negotiates the purchase of this portrait from this family. And after restoration and after, you know, we're getting workers to do it properly, he's able to get the portrait moved over to his home. But here he's also able to get, he's able to find other kind of artifacts and relics of Kerwin's life, most specifically uh, his journal. And this is all ciphered, so Charles Dexter Ward is going to have to break out the cipher. But there's a couple documents here. One is his overall journal called Joseph Kerwin, His Life and Travels Between Years 1678 and 1687, Of Hither He Voyaged, Where He Stayed, Whom He Saw, and What He Learned. But the other more important document is To Him Who Shall Come After and How He Might Get Beyond Time in the Spheres. Um, so this are the instructions to Ward by, you know, through time right so this is the spells that are going to be required and the actions he's going to have to take in order to raise up uh current well, what's the goal of course he's being sold on uh, something greater which is like this this ability to have access to this magic which is it's a false promise uh, as we'll find out later on but it's a, certainly a seductive one for for ward so this leads to a whole kind of new phase in in Ward's research, right? So there's a clear turn. And some of the stories told from the perspective of these, like the family and the outsiders and the alienists who watch him and are trying to document just when did he go nuts, right? So they're interested in these changes in his interests. This is one of those turns in his interests. Um, for one, he kind of gives up going to college. He says that there's nothing I can learn at college. And he gives up. He kind of starts slacking off at, in high school too. He's still like 17, 18 years old. At this point, so he becomes he gets he doesn't become he loses the interest in those things. He becomes more isolated. He becomes his interests become more esoteric, more interested in the occult stuff, and he starts exploring more widely, regionally, in libraries, but exploring different stuff. It's not just family history, and that's not just Kerwin, but he's interested in in kind of new topics, right? And so that's another thing you kind of watch for as you read the story is like the different interests award, and and you know the end of his life 
Now, one of the main things he's looking for pretty urgently is the grave of Joseph Kerwin, which was apparently hidden. And we're getting reminded of this theme of forgetfulness, of forgetting, and the importance of forgetting in this chapter with, with this quote. Uh, quote, but clerks at the state house, the city hall, and the various libraries agree as to the definite object of his second interest. He was searching intensely and fervently for the grave of Joseph Kerwin, from whose slate slab an older generation had so wisely blotted the name, end quote. And this isn't the only time we even see like the, the JC on his knocker on the door was filed away. So even the, the, the initials on the knocker is filed away on the door, but the, the door is still there. Um, which is, that's what nice thing about this story is like the setting only works in New England. It doesn't work in, in the West. It doesn't, you know, they, they can have horror, but they can't have horror that's kind of rooted to this colonial past, right? So, you know, the fact that you still have old architecture, you know, these buildings still exist. Some, I'm, just, I'm sure some colonial buildings still exist now in New England, right? They were made to, to endure. And, and that's one thing that Lovecraft was so fascinated by Providence. So this kind of, generational legacy in the physical place uh, you know in the graveyards but also in the architecture it's there so i mean a big breakthrough for ward is the discovery of the the home of of kerwin the home so anyways at, at this point the family's getting a bit freaked out at his new interests and his in his kind of necrotic interests in particular the fact that he's kind of going after dead bodies that kind of chills them a little bit. Um, and this is when we get the first intervention. So it's the family actually begins an intervention. And this is our, also our first introduction kind of in, in a chronological sense to Dr. Willett. Dr. Willett, the great hero of the story, we actually have already met. He shows up in the first part of the story quite a lot in the first chapter. But he only shows up chronologically at this point in the story when he's brought in to help with this intervention. When the Ward family is going to basically sit down, you know, young Charles Dexter Ward and tell him what's what. Tell him not to, you know, to not be so weird anymore. Everyone thinks you're crazy and, and you're creeping out people and you got to do it. So we get this intervention there and you know he's pretty clever he kind of admits what he does and that it might be weird and he says like oh maybe i won't do that anymore he kind of gives them what they want to hear but he doesn't actually change in his his pursuits so ward even shows willett some of this book this or this text to him who shall come after that he's been translating with this cipher and he kind of wants to prove to him that it's innocuous so he picks a boring page of this to show him he doesn't show him the actually interesting pages but this page is just about like his his slave trading and his the, his interaction with sailors. Here's a bit of it. Uh, quote, my sloop, the Wakefield, this day put in from London with 20 new men picked up in the Indies, Spaniards from Manticarno and two Dutchmen from Suriname, et cetera, et cetera. So even this, though, is pretty creepy stuff. It shows just how the kind of dark stuff that Kerwin was was into. But from a 20th century point of view, it's it's just kind of a historical interest. And he's able to sort of shoo Willett and his parents away saying that these are actually rational interests. Um, but his in, he, he does kind of pursue this scholarship, though. He pursues this, this uh, weird interest in Sir Joseph Kerwin's life and even broader. So this, you know, certainly the Kerwin's and Orne's main interest was in sort of 
awakening the dead and getting the information from them. But it seems that's just a means to an end. There's something deeper that they're interested in. And one piece of evidence for this is that Charles kind of follows certain threads to find answers to his questions. And one of these threads leads him to, I, it seems, Castro. Um, quote, he became recognized as eccentric and dropped even more completely from the sight of his family and friends that he had been keeping before, keeping close to his work and only occasionally making trips to other cities to consult obscure records. Once he went south to talk with a strange old mulatto who dwelt in a swamp and about whom a newspaper had printed a curious article. So the Castro raid was in 1908, right? Um, and there would have been news about that, uh, maybe even news about La Grasse's, uh interview of him. Now, we know that Castro died. He dies by the time that the the narrator of the Call of Cthulhu goes to kind of follow up on this story. And that's 1926, 27. This is happening like in 1922. So it seems to me in the timeline, if I'm wrong, let me know. It seems to me from the timeline here, it's quite possible that this strange old mulatto he, he visits is Castro himself. Um, at the very least, he seems to be a member of the Cthulhu cult. So my, this leads me to believe that there's something beyond just raising the dead and building up a library that these guys are into. It actually does feed into the whole mythos, uh, the Arkham cycle, if you will, in, in concrete ways. Um, so he decides he wants to take a European trip. Now, in Really, what's going on here is he's following a lead. He's following a lead. He, I think he, he wants to go talk to, essentially, Orn. Um, but he, he decides to take this trip. And the, but the, parent, the, the family, his parents, are kind of okay with this because they think it might be good for him to get out of New England where he's been kind of getting weird. So, um, you know, so he goes. And there's some family business he can sort of do there, too. So he takes this European trip. And he goes to Paris, Prague, Germany, and Transylvania. So those are his destinations on this trip. Um, and he writes, and at one point even his mother writes him and says, like, why don't I visit you in Paris? I, I have my time and money. I'm going to come over there. Why don't I run into you there? And he's like, no, 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 you can't see me, right? Like, it's, it's, again, kind of this young man trying to, struggling to keep his life private. Even in Europe, he, he has his parents seeming to be nosy about his interests. But he... You know, he's following leads that Kerwin's contacts in Europe kind of lead him to. So we get this transatlantic narrative, which has always been there in this story, especially in Chapter 2. But it's still there and already main part of the story throughout. And I think that's uh, uh, why this is one of his most Atlant consciously Atlantic stories. Um, so he meets this guy, Baron uh, Frensky, uh, in Transylvania, um, who... Anyways, he'll be back later. Who he is, it's, it's a little bit of part of the mystery of the novel. But he'll be back later. We'll hear about him later on in the story. So finally, he returns to Providence. And we get this wonderful little paragraph where Lovecraft gets to kind of once again express his profound love for Providence. And we have kind of Charles Dexter Ward's I am, I, I am Providence sort of moment. Quote, Old Providence. It was this place that the mysterious forces of its long continuous history had been brought him into being 
which had brought him into being and which had brought him back towards marvels and secrets whose boundaries no prophet might fix. Here lie the arcana, wondrous or dreadful, as the case may be, for which all his years of travel and application had been preparing him. A taxi cab whirled him through the post office square with its glimpse of the river, the old market house, the head of the bay, and up steep curve towards the Waterman streets to prospect where the vast gleaming dome sunset flushed ionic columns of the christian science church beckoned northward then eight squares past the fine old estates as childish eyes had known in the quaint brick sidewalks so often trotted by his youthful feet and at last the little white overtaken farmhouse on its right on the left the classic adam porch and the stately braid facade of a great brick house where he was born it was twilight and charles dexter horror charles dexter ward had come home Great moment. It is this uh, uh, I am Providence moment, but for, for Ward. So it's a nice little touch there. So now for the rest of this chapter, Ward is basically figured out, he's figured out what he needs to figure out, and he just has to practice it and, and do these spells and find Kerwin's body in order to actually raise it from the dead. So that's really what happens in the remainder of this chapter. Now, at this point, we're reminded once again of this debate among the alienists and Dr. Willard about when he went mad, because like even the most conservative alienists have said, like at this point, at least when he starts going in his room, casting spells, you got to say this guy's a bit nuts by this point. And Willard says, no, it's not here yet either, because Willard knows pretty much the exact moment in which, you know, Kerwin emerges and, and, and Charles Dexter Ward is Kerwin, right? It's. When Kerwin murders Ward, I mean that's what happens. It's not a body swap. It's not a, a, a mind brain swap kind of thing like in in some of the other stories. Um, it's it's literally he's awakened and and Ward is murdered. I think Willett seems to know exactly when that is, so he's able to pinpoint this madness of Ward to that point. Uh, but we're reminded of this debate among the alienists, and it's it's um, it's telling us at least if we're following Willett's logic and taking him as a more trusted account, you know, we're being also told that, you know, there's a bigger change for Ward later in the story. Um, but it's really funny, though. I think this is one of the more funny parts of this of this novel where we have all these weird sounds coming from uh, Ward's door, right? All these real, you know, experiments and the weird smells coming in because he's got to experiment with different things and the essential salts and all that's going on there, too. Um, now there's a cat that has this, the unfortunate name Nig. Uh, this is not the first time Lovecraft has done that. Of course, we just need to remember, uh, the rats on the wall. Um, he's eventually killed apparently by, by Joseph Kerwin when Kerwin is finally uh, awakened a little bit later in this chapter. Um, but he's bothered by all the weird stuff that, that, Ward is doing. The parents are like sitting downstairs having breakfast and hearing <laughs> chanting and and repetition and kind of weird mantras and you know and the room shakes once in a while and there's weird stuff happening during storms. It's it's really wonderful and and kind of hilarious. I think. Um, now he gets another kind of new interest. It's a it's a it's a subtle one. It's a minor one, but he starts asking like, when is the ground gonna thaw? He's, he's apparently he's found where Kerwin's grave is, and now his biggest interest is when is the ground gonna thaw? Like when when can I dig up this body? It's it's such a weird thing to 
be interested in. But I just you have these scenes in your mind of like Ward coming down for breakfast after staying up late the night before casting spells. Asking, you know, when is the ground going to be soft enough to dig? You know, what would what you know? You understand why the parents are so bothered and freaked out by by Ward's behavior. Um, and he actually eventually has to hire people. He hires like a, a posse of people to go and and go to Kerwin's gravesite and dig up the body and bring it back to his house. And we actually that's, it actually gets in the news because some people found it and and they ran away, and it's revealed that. It's revealed in the newspapers that there were some grave diggers <laughs> digging up some body in this um, uh, burial ground. Um, but um, after this is done, we see the return of the rituals over the next few days as Ward again is experimenting in in things. Um, he actually has to keep finding new books, though, and you know because Kerwin had this wonderful library. These books presumably are sh- um, scattered or destroyed, but copies of these things exist in different places including the Antonaeum of Boston quote once he made a hasty trip to the Antonaeum for a book he required and again he hired a messenger to fetch him a highly obscure volume from Boston suspense was written portentously over the whole situation and both the family and Dr. Will confessed themselves wholly at a loss of what to do or think about it so this brings us to the climax of the of the chapter which is on April 15th uh I guess 1927 it must be, because he returned to Providence in May 1926, and this is taking place in April. So it's, it's April 1927. He uh, has everything ready. He's got the body. He's got or the remains of Corona, whatever they, they, might, they might be at this point. Um, he's got the spells. He's got the ability to do it. He's got all the instructions, and he's pursues the ritual. And it's really, again, another scene where... The parents are hearing these weird sounds from from upstairs and he awakens Joseph Kerwin, although it's not apparent to any other observer and the narrator is to make it clear to us that that's happened. But clearly, like the parents listening in on the door of of their son trying to hear what's figure out what's going on. Here's two voices. Right. Which, of course, is really, really creepy if you think about it. And like, you know, it's like there's literally someone else in that room. But there can't be, right? Because it doesn't make any sense that there'd be someone else in the room. And one of the things he says is, like, write, which is, a, you know, it's not clear what he's asking him to write um, at this point. But there it is. It's it's a lot of fun, uh, this this whole section where we, we get to basically see the awakening of Joseph Kerwin through the eyes of the, of the family members, not really through Charles Dexter Ward at all, who is rarely on scene in, in, in this we just get a kind of a narrative of what he does and where he goes. and But we don't get the details we would get if we really had a narration from Ward's point of view. Like, for instance, we know what these books are. We would know exactly what kind of rituals he's performing. But it's all kind of mysterious. Which is great. I love it. Um, now, Kerwin's alive now. And he's, I guess, in the closet or in the room hiding out. Um but weird stuff happens almost immediately, one of which is the cat dies. And this seems to be a result of Kerwin's um, villainy. We also know Kerwin is, is checking out books, uh, at least through Ward. Uh, Ward is checking out books on his behalf on all these modern things. So this is the first sign mentioned, a return to something mentioned in the first chapter, which was one reason people started to think that 
Ward was going crazy was because he stopped being interested in antiquarianism and started being interested in modern science. Quote, these new withdrawals were all modern items, histories, scientific treatises, geographies, manuals of literature, philosophical works, and a certain contemporary newspapers and magazines. It was a very curious shift from Charles Ward's recent run of reading, and the fur farther and the far, father paused in a growing vortex of perplexity and an engulfing sense of strangeness. Now, the chapter ends with him going into um, Ward's room and seeing that the portrait of Joseph Kerwin is gone and it's been reduced to fine bluish gray dust, right? So this is the... This is what happens when you reduce something to its essential salts through this spell, as it, it's reduced to this dust. Um, and that's what was has been done to this, this portrait. It's not really clear why this has been done. Was it practice? I'm not sure, actually. I read the story a few times, and I'm not quite sure the significance of this picture being reduced to dust, but it might have just been a you know him practicing on that thing. Uh, or it may have something to do with Joseph Kerwin's. I'll, I'll keep an eye as I as I read the final two chapters in the coming days. So um, that's it. So as I said, this section of the story just sort of gets you from here to there. It gets us to that important point where um, Kerwin is alive again and an active villain in our time. It had to be done. It, it took a while for us to get to that point. It doesn't have the drama and the excitement i think of part two which i think is just a brilliant section um but it's got some great moments in it and it, we're reminded of a lot of the themes of the story such as forgetting the and another uh big important part of this is the introduction of willet as a character we start to actually see willet as an active character in the story and someone who's actively concerned for ward's behalf and uh, a close friend of the ward family so he is, he'll of course be a very important uh, player in the final two sections of the story particularly the final chapter so in the next uh episode i'll take a look at part four chapter four of charles dexter ward a mutation and a madness which covers the period from from this point to um basically the the murder of charles dexter ward and the revelation and the realization by some characters, such as Willett, that there's something much more nefarious going on um, and that this guy who's posing to be Ward is not Ward at all. So that that will um, be what I'm going to talk about next time. It's another chapter that sort of gets you from here to there. It's like the prelude before the great epic uh, climax, but it's also a lot of fun. And we get to see Kerwin, like, what's he doing now that he's awake, now that he's back? It, you know, if you were to, it's... It's like what what happens when the serial killer is, is awakened from the dead and can go back rampaging. It's like what is Kerwin going to do when he's back in the modern world, right? So we're going to see in the next episode what kind of shenanigans Kerwin gets up to while he's um, now that he's in the twentieth century. So, um, anyways, let me know what you think of this section um, of the of the story or the story overall. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, I don't have too much analysis of this section. I don't think it's pretty. It's pretty light on that. It is much more of a narrative-driven section, but I think there's a lot of interesting things about to say about like the literature that he's digging up. I think I still think an essay or an investigation into Joseph Kerwin's library would be really, really worthwhile, and maybe someone will do that someday. 
So uh, if you have anything to add to those themes, let me know, and I will uh, I'll just be glad to read about them and think about what you have to say. So as always, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.